Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. I invite you to take your Bible this morning and join me in the book of Romans, the 12th chapter. Romans chapter 1. And I want to speak to you this morning on the power of a consecrated life lived out in the ministry of Mrs. Lottie Moon. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Lottie Moon was born Charlotte Lottie Diggs Moon on December the 12th, 1840 in Virginia. She entered the world as a part of Southern aristocracy prior to the Civil War. This war would devastate her family and following the end of the war, her family's wealth was one fortieth of its pre-war value. She would die on December the 24th, 1912 aboard a ship in the Japanese harbor of Kobe. She would be frail, weak, and nearly starved to death, having just passed her 72nd birthday. It is said that she weighed no more than 50 pounds at her death because she had refused to eat because of a famine that was sweeping China. And she said, if the Chinese people do not have food, then I will not eat either. She served our Lord for 39 years on the mission field, a short stint in Japan, but most of her ministry in China. And best estimates, though there is some debate, best estimates are that she was only four feet, three inches tall. And it was never said that Lottie was a beautiful lady, but there was a certain attractiveness about her. And this little lady had a powerful, powerful personality that would serve her very well for her 39 years on the mission field. She taught in schools for girls and made many evangelistic trips into China's interior to share the gospel with women and girls. She would even preach against her wishes to men. Because then as now, there were not enough men on the mission field. I have no doubt, having spent many months with Lottie, having read all of her letters, uh, wonderfully edited by our own Keith Harper, and working through a number of biographies on Lottie Moon, I have no doubt that she would be amazed and perhaps even embarrassed at all the fuss by Southern Baptists made about her every December. She did know that in 1888, Southern Baptists, at her request, raised $3,315, enough to send three new women missionaries to China. However, she could have never imagined that in 2006, more than $150 million would be raised in her name. In 2007, there's a goal of $165 million set in her name. And since the inception of the Lottie Moon offering, more than $2.8 billion have been raised for missions in her name. 
52% of the International Mission Board's budget comes directly from the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, this offering that honors her name. And so if you study her life, you see a life wherein Romans chapter 12, verse 1, is lived out. For you see a little woman whose life was sold out to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, a life that was completely and totally consecrated to His will and His purpose. There are four marvelous truths that emerge from Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that I want to share with you this morning, each of which you will see finds an echo in the life of Lottie Moon. And I would pray it will also find an echo in my life and in your life as well. Number one, we should live a grateful life. Paul begins by saying, I encourage you based upon the mercies of God. Probably a shorthand for the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans where Paul has unpacked the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of sanctification, the doctrine of sovereignty. And now, based upon all that God has done for us in Christ, Paul can say, I urge you, I encourage you, I plead with you by the mercies of God. God. It is the mercies of God that indeed overwhelmed Lottie Moon, but actually not until she was in college. She came to conversion at that time as a child. She was raised in a Christian home. Uh, her mother would read to, to Lottie and to her brothers and sisters uh, Bible stories as well as religious books. In fact, one of the books that her mother read to her was a biography of Anne Judson. The wife of Adoniram Judson and the first Baptist woman missionary from America. It was in December of 1858, and you'll discover when you study Lottie Moon's life that Decembers were especially special to her. It was at the age of 18 in December of 1858 that Lottie placed her faith and trust in Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. The preacher was the famous Southern Baptist statesman and pulpiteer John Broadus. One of the founding professors of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He was considered by all the greatest preacher in the South at this particular time. John Broadus was there when she was converted. John Broadus would baptize her. And she would later share that her call to missions was the result of the encouragement that she received from Dr. John Broadus. In fact, he placed the seed in her heart, even though at the time, It was absolutely unthinkable that a single woman would dare leave this nation and go to the foreign mission field. This grateful life of Lottie would usher in a life of great confidence in the providence and the sovereignty of God. She wrote, quote, I do not believe that any trouble comes upon us unless it is needed. And it seems to me that we ought to be just as thankful for sorrow as for joys. And she would often quote the uh, prayer of John Broadus, who said, Send us affliction and trouble. Blight our dearest hopes, if need be, that we may learn more fully to depend uh, on thee. And later in a letter that she wrote to J.C. Williams in February of 1876, she would say, But the work is God's. And we do not fear the final results. The heathen shall be given to his son for his inheritance. And we must be content to await his own time. Thus, gratitude growing out of a trust in divine providence colored Lottie's perspective on life 
and she would need this. Her father would die when she was 12 while on a business trip. Repeatedly, she would face famine and opposition there in China, being referred to as the little devil woman, and many times again, foregoing the comforts that you and I take for granted because of her heart's desire to minister to these people who were lost, and in many cases, suffering in the midst of famine and other blights and other difficulties. But Lottie's life also was marked by loneliness. I will share in a moment that she was... um, the recipient of a marriage proposal that she would turn down and turn down for biblical and theological reasons. And so as a result of her lonely life, her companion many times was no one other than the Lord. Often she would be the only Southern Baptist missionary in northern China. But she stayed with the work that the Lord had given her. In fact, she relocated to Pingtu in December of 1885. She was aided by a Chinese couple that helped her rent an apartment, a four-room dirt floor house, for $24 a year. And she stayed there through the summer, and she began to do something that we have picked up since then as a wise missionary strategy. She ate and lived as the Chinese did, and she also was living in an area where at that time she was the only one who spoke English. But Lottie had in her heart the heart of an evangelist. And so she very quickly adopted, uh, adapted to the local dialect. She began visiting surrounding villages, and within a few months... She had made 122 trips to 33 different places all along, trusting in the sovereignty of God and expressing her gratitude for His goodness in her life. In fact, it was her gratitude to God that became her basis for challenging again and again and again the people back home to give to the work of missions. In fact, she was opposed to raising funds by entertainment and gimmicks. So obviously, that's not something new to our day. It was going on even back then. Listen to what she wrote. I wonder... How many of us really believe that it is more blessed to give than to receive? A woman who accepts that statement of our Lord Jesus Christ as a matter of fact and not as in practical idealism will make giving a principle of her life. She will lay aside sacredly not less than one-tenth of her income or her earnings as the Lord's money, which she would no more dare touch for personal use than she would steal. How many there are among our women, alas, who imagine that because Jesus paid it all, they need pay nothing, forgetting that the prime object of their salvation was that they should follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Yes, she was grateful to God and she trusted in his providence. Persecution broke out against Christians in Shang Li in 1890. Relatives of one of the first inquirers, a man named Dan Hobang, was tied to a pole and beat, but he refused to submit to the worship of the ancestral tablets. A young convert, Lee Shoting, was beaten by his brothers, who also tore out his hair, but he would remain steadfast in his faith, and in fact, he would become the great evangelist of northern China, baptizing more than ten thousand believers. When Lottie heard of this persecution, she rushed to Shaling and told the persecutors, quote, if you attempt to destroy his church, you will have to kill me first. Jesus gave himself for us Christians. Now I am ready to die for him. 
One of the mob attempted to kill her, but sovereignly and providentially was prevented. And as a result of that persecution, the Christian believers refused to press charges against those who had hurt them, did not take them to court. And as a result, those in that area became more open to the gospel, and many of them came to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. One final example of her confidence in the God of Providence, China's revolution broke out late in 1911. The fighting was intense around the Baptist mission stations in northern China. The U.S. consul asked missionaries in Wasan to move to a safer port city, and all of them agreed, but Lottie. She said, no, I won't go. And in fact, she learned that the Chinese hospital personnel had been left alone in Wasin. She made her way safely through the warring troops and took charge of the hospital. She encouraged the nurses and the others to stay on and to continue to minister. They were encouraged by her, uh, her faith and encouraged by her boldness. And later, when the uh, trouble subsided, when Dr. Ayers and other male missionaries came back and found her, they were amazed to see this little lady directing and working quite efficiently as she had done for many days over that particular hospital. Now, this is fascinating to me. When the hospital was in its final rightful hands, Lottie packed to return home. But the men warned that heavy fighting made this impossible. But she insisted. So they sent word to the opposing generals that Miss Moon would be passing through at a set hour. A young missionary escorted her, and as they made their way through the battle lines, firing stopped on both sides to let the little missionary lady pass through. Hers was a grateful life. Secondly, hers was also a life that was total. We should live a total life. The Bible calls us what? Present your bodies. It's personal, it's individual, it's volitional, it's total. If I could summarize it, Paul is saying God wants all of you all of the time. And once she was converted, that was indeed the agenda for Miss Lottie Moon. She was a genius. In college, she mastered Greek, Hebrew, Latin, Italian, French, and Spanish. In 1861, she graduated from uh, Alba Marie or Alba Marie Female Institute, uh, which was the counterpart to the University of Virginia. She was one of the first women in the South to receive a master's degree. John Broaddus would say of her, she is the most educated or cultured woman in the South. During the Civil War, she and her sisters Collie and Molly nursed soldiers at Charlottesville, as well as her own brother Ori back home. Prior to leaving for China, she taught Sunday school near Viewpoint, Virginia, to both black and white children. Indeed, Lottie said she felt her call to China, quote, as clear as a bell in February of 1873. She did so after hearing a sermon on missions at First Baptist Church in Cartersville, Georgia. She left the service, went to her room, prayed all afternoon, and answered the call to mission. Some five months later, on July the 7th, 1873, the Foreign Mission Board appointed Charlotte Diggs Moon as a missionary. She was asked, and most people do not know this, she was asked to join her sister, who actually had preceded her to the mission field in King Chow. 
about to sail from San Francisco, Lottie received a very encouraging word that the Baptist women in Cartersville would support her. Now, remember, there's no cooperative program until 1925. And so missions uh, uh, monies had to be raised personally and individually, and she'd received word that she would be financially supported by the women at the First Baptist Church of Cartersville. As I mentioned a moment ago, she was an evangelist at heart. Village after village, she would travel speaking early in the morning to late in the evening. She would evangelize on the streets, in the yards of dirty homes. She traveled in what was called a shinsees, as well as riding donkeys. She evangelized in the heat and the dust, the summer, the winter, the rain, the snow. She was constantly on the field sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Indeed, she put herself at great risk, exposure to smallpox as well as other diseases. And yet she suppressed her cravings for cultured life and conversation and her southern taste all for the cause of Christ. She said, and I quote, as I wander from village to village, I feel it is no idle fancy that the master walks beside me. And I hear his voice saying gently, I am with you always even until the end of the age. She found strength in prayer and Bible reading and devotional classics. In fact, she often wrote quotations from the spiritual writings in the margin of her Bibles. I'll note two wonderful ones toward the end of the message. But one of the favorite sayings she had written in her Bible was, and I quote, Go on joyously as much as you can. And if you do not always go on joyously, at best, go on courageously and uh, confidently. It's interesting to note this. It was Lottie Moon who suggested to Dr. Tupper, who was head of the mission board at that time, that the board follow the pattern of some other mission groups and provide for a year of furlough every 10 years that one was on the field. At first they resisted and then eventually they gave way, though many missionaries had died and many were broken physically spiritually and emotionally because of the drain of being on the field without some break in the midst of their service. Lottie also repeatedly struggled with the tragic fact that more did not answer the call to missions, especially men. And you're now about to see a series of letters that she wrote that I think, I hope, I pray brings conviction to every one of our hearts. November the 1st, 1873, a letter to H.A. Tupper, quote, What we need in China is more workers. The harvest is very great. The laborers owe so few. Why does the Southern Baptist Church lag behind in this great work? I think your idea is correct that a young man should ask himself not if it is his duty to go to the heathen, but if he may dare stay at home. The command is so plain, go. April the 27th, 1874, oh, that we had active and zealous men who would go far and wide scattering books and tracts and preaching the word of the, preaching the word of the vast multitudes of, or to the vast multitudes of this land. November the 4th, 1875, quote, I write today moved by feelings which come over me constantly when I go out on country trips. The harvest is plenteous. The laborers are few. What we find uh, missionaries can do in the way of preaching the gospel, even in the immediate neighborhood of the city, is, but as the thousandth part of a drop in the bucket compared with what should be done. 
I do not pretend to aver that there is any spiritual interest among these people. They literally sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. The burden of our words to them is the folly and sin of idol worship. We are but doing pioneer work, but breaking up the soil in which we believe others shall sow a bountiful crop. But as in the natural soil, four or five laborers cannot possibly cultivate a radius of 20 miles. So cannot we, a mission of five people, do more than make a beginning of what should be done? But is there no way to arouse the churches on this subject? We missionaries find it in our hearts to say to them in all humility, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead to remember the heathen. We implore you to send us help. Let us not these he- let not these heathens sink down into eternal death without one opportunity to hear that blessed gospel, which is to you the source of all joy and comfort. The work that constantly presses upon us is greater than time or strength permit us to do. April 14, 1876. There was a large crowd pretty soon in attendance, so many that the hall would not hold them, and they adjourned to the yard. I hope you won't think me desperately unfeminine, but I spoke to them all, men, women, and children, pleading with them to turn from their idols to the true and living God. I should not have dared to remain silent with so many souls before me sunk in heathen darkness. October the 10th, 1878, quote, Odd that with 500 Baptist preachers in the state of Virginia... We must rely on a Presbyterian minister to fill a Baptist pulpit here. I wonder how these things look in heaven. They certainly look very queer in China. But then we Baptists are a great people, as we never tire of saying at our associations and conventions, and possibly your way, our way of doing things is the best. With kindest regards, yours sincerely, Lottie Moon. She's not finished. In fact, folks... I could have quadrupled the number of letters I could cite this morning where she again and again and again says, we need more workers, we need more workers, we need more workers, and we need men to step up to the plate and be what God has called men to do and men to be. How inadequate our force. Here is a province of 30 million souls, and Southern Baptists can only send one man and three women to tell them the story of redeeming love. Oh, that my words could be as a trumpet call, stirring the hearts of my brethren and sisters to pray, to labor, to give themselves to this people. But some will say we must have results, else interest flags. I've seen the husbandman go forth in the autumn to plow the fields. Later, I've seen him scatter the seed broadcast. Anon, the tiny green shoots come up, scarcely visible at first. Then the snows of winter fell, concealing them for weeks. Spring brought its uh, fruitifying rains, its general, its genial sunshine. And lo, in June, the golden harvest. We are now a very, very few feeble workers, scattering the grain broadcast according as time and strength permit. God will give the harvest, doubt it not. But the laborers are so few. Where will we have where will we have four? We should have not less than one hundred. Are these wild words? They would not seem so were the church of God awake. 
to her high privileges and her weighty responsibility. An open letter to the religious herald, quote, I am trying honestly to do the work that could fill the hands of three or four women. In addition, must do much work that ought to be done by young men. Our dilemma to do men's work or to sit silent at religious services conducted by men just emerging from heathenism. A letter to Dr. Tupper, January the 8th, quote, There is so much work to be done, too, that ought to be done by men. A young woman could not do the work and retain the respect of Chinese men. While I do not a little for the men and the boys, I do not feel bound to stay on their account still. I must add that the work is suffering and will continue to suffer in that department for want of a man living on the spot. Again, the Foreign Missions Journal, quote, In the vast continent of Africa, we have one white missionary and one colored. In Japan, we have not one. In China, we have at present eight missionaries. Putting the population of China at 400 million, this gives one missionary for 50 million people. Yet we ourselves, yet we call ourselves missionary Baptists. Our Lord says, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Are we obeying his command? The Foreign Missions Journal, January 1888, quote, The need of these people press upon my soul and I cannot be silent. It is grievous to think of these human souls going down to death without even one opportunity of hearing the name of Jesus. People talk vaguely about the heathen, picturing them as scarcely human or at best as ignorant barbarians. If they could live among them as I do, they would find in the men much to respect and admire. In the women and girls, they would see many sweet and loving traits of character. They would feel pressing upon their heart and conscience the duty of giving the gospel to them. It does seem strange that when men and women can be found willing to risk life or at least health and strength in order that these people may hear the gospel, that Christians withhold the means to send them. Once more, I urge upon the consciences of my Christian brethren and sisters the claims of these people among whom I dwell. Here am I working alone in a city of many thousand inhabitants with numberless villages clustered around or stretching away in the illuminate distance. How many can I reach? It fills one with sorrow to see these people so earnest in their worship of false gods, seeking to work out their salvation by supposed works of merit, with no one to tell them of a better way than to remember the wealth hoarded in Christian coffers, the money lavished on fine dresses and costly living. Is it not time for Christian men and women to return to the simplicity of earlier times? Should we not press it home upon our consciences that the sole object of our conversion was not the salvation of our own souls, but that we might become co-workers with our Lord and Master in the conversion of the world. And then published in the May Foreign Missions Journal, 1889, quote, When cannot help asking daily, why is the love of God more potent than the love of soul, love of gold, excuse me, more potent than the love of souls? The number of men mining and prospecting for gold in Shantung is more than double the number of men representing Southern Baptists. What a lesson for Southern Baptists to ponder. 
Yes, we should live a grateful life. We should live a total life. Number three, we should live a sacrificial life. This text says that we are to be a living sacrifice. That sounds odd, doesn't it? It sounds like an oxymoron, but what the Bible is simply saying is this. When you bring your life under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, when you live a consecrated life, there are now some things to which you die, and there are other things to which you become alive. There are some things that once meant everything to you. Now they mean nothing. And there, were other, there are other things now that once you do not think about them much at all, and now you cannot get them out of your mind. Lottie Moon lived this kind of sacrificial life. Listen to this spirited correspondence to Dr. Tupper, November the 11th, 1878. Quote, Possibly you may have noticed throughout this letter that I have made frequent allusions to physical discomforts and to weariness of mind and body. I've always been ashamed in writing a missionary work to dwell upon physical hardships and then to we get so accustomed to them uh, as a matter of course that it does not occur to us to speak of them save in a general way. In this letter, though, I have purposefully declared, or excuse me, I purposely departed from my usual reticence upon such matters because I know that there are some who in their pleasant homes in America, without any real knowledge of the facts, declare that the days of missionary hardship are over. To speak in the open air in a foreign tongue from six to eleven times a day is no trifle. The fatigue of travel is something. The ends are simply the acclim of discomfort. If anyone fancies that sleeping on brick beds in rooms with dirt floors, with walls blackened by the smoke of generations, the yard to these quarters being also the stable yard and the stable itself being in three feet of the door of your apartment, if anyone thinks all this agreeable, then I wish to declare most emphatically that I, as a matter of taste, I differ. If anyone thinks he would like the constant contact with what an English writer has called the great unwashed, I must still say that from experience, I find it unpleasant. If anyone thinks that constant exposure to the risk of smallpox and other contagious diseases against which the Chinese take no precautions whatsoever, is just the most charming thing in life. I must still beg leave to say that I shall continue to differ in opinion. In a word, let him come out and try it. She was having a bad day. Anyway, she had lots of bad days. Not because of her, but because of where she was. A few days roughing it, as we ladies do habitually, will convince the most skeptical. There is a passage from Farrer's Life of Christ which recurred forcibly to my mind during this recent country tour, quote, speaking of the Lord, from early dawn to late evening, whatever house he had selected for his nightly rest, the multitude came crowding about him, not respecting his privacy, not allowed for his weariness, eager to see him. There was no time even to eat bread. Such a life is not only to the last degree trying and fatiguing, but to a refined and high-strung nature. This incessant publicity, this uh, apparently illuminable toil becomes simply maddening unless the spirit be sustained. But he was the son of God. We are missionaries. We are only trying in a very poor way to walk in his footsteps. And this boundless sympathy and love is of the divine and not the human. But what amazes me is what she did next. A few more words and I have done. We are astonished at the wide door opened us for work. We have such access to the people to hear hearts 
and homes to their hearts and homes as we could not have dared to hope two years ago. In other words, she spills her guts, she shares her heart, and then she says, but isn't God being good to continue to open other doors? But there's one instance in Lottie Moon's life that is so very instructive that all of us need to pause here for just a moment. I mentioned earlier that Lottie Moon never did marry, though she did receive a proposal that she would turn down. You see, there was a brilliant Hebrew and Old Testament scholar at Southern Seminary by the name of Crawford Toy. Crawford Toy was called the crown jewel of Southern Seminary because he was the most brilliant graduate in their early days. He was a genius. No one questions that. And so very quickly, let me recount for you the love story that ended and was not between Crawford Toy and Lottie Moon. Number one, they met when she was a student at Albemarie Female Institute, and he was an assistant to the principal a noted educator named John Hart. At the time, Lottie was considered, quote, a brain and a heretic because she was not converted, and she made fun, as a matter of fact, of those who were serious about their relationship with Christ. But she did come to Christ, and it appears that she and Crawford Toy developed something more than a student or a a, a teacher-pupil relationship. Secondly, now stay with me. Crawford Toy committed himself to be a missionary. Lottie would make the same commitment a few years later. Toy was set to sail for the mission field in 1860, but for some reason, he did not go. Number three, in 1870, Toy returned to Southern Seminary, having studied for a number of years in Germany. While in Germany, he fully ingested the liberal historical critical method that was sweeping the European and uh, British world. Number four, around 1876, Lottie Moon returned from China back to the States, accompanying her sister, Edmonia, known nickname Eddie. She had suffered an emotional breakdown while on the field. Apparently, while she was back in 1876, she renewed her relationship with Crawford Toy, and there appears to be some rekindling of their romance. Number five, controversy on the mission field led Lottie to consider leaving China, returning to America, and marrying Toy and moving to now Boston, where he had become a distinguished Old Testament professor at Harvard. Number six, the wedding never took place. Quote from her biographer, according to Toy's own family, The engagement was broken because of religious differences. It appears toys slide into theological liberalism and backtracking on going to the mission field led Lottie to break off their engagement. This is two of the saddest lines in the whole story this morning. Toy would go to Harvard and die a Unitarian. Lottie would remain in China and die alone. She was asked by a young relative on one occasion, Aunt Lottie, have you ever been in love? And she said, yes, but God had first claim on my life. And since the two conflicted, there could be no question about the results. She would go on to address this issue of liberal theology in writings. She would continue to write back and encourage Southern Baptists to come and go. Let me quickly, for time's sake, move to my fourth point. You need to live a worshipful life. 
Paul says in Romans 12, 1, that the consecrated life is what we can call our reasonable service. Other English translations have it this way, your spiritual act of worship, the NIV, uh, your spiritual service of worship, the New American Standard, your spiritual worship, the ESV, and the Holman Christian Standard Bible. The point Paul is making is a consecrated life is a worshiping life. It is a life lived 24-7 under the Lordship of Christ and for the glory of God. Such a life, by the way, grows out of a number of convictions that we see in Lottie Moon's life. I hasten. She had a great love and reverence for the Bible. In fact, after her death, when her Bible was recovered, here's what they found in her Bible. Quote, words failed to express my love for this holy book. My gratitude for its author, for his love and goodness, how shall I thank him for it? Such a life grows out of a confidence in the providence and sovereignty of God. She made a very famous statement that's been picked up by others, but I do not find it predating Lottie Moon. Quote, I have a firm conviction that I am immortal till my work is done. Such a life grows out of dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Quote, I feel my weakness and inability to accomplish anything without the aid of the Holy Spirit. Make special prayer for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Ping Tu, that I may be clothed with power from on high by the indwelling of the Spirit in my heart. Such a life grows out of love for the lost. Quote, we must go out and live among them, manifesting the gentle, loving Spirit of our Lord. We need to make friends before we can hope to make converts. In fact, during the 1890s, Lottie set a goal to visit 200 villages every three months. And she would write, quote, I have never found mission work more enjoyable. I constantly thank God he has given me a work I love so much. And then in a letter that was published in the Foreign Mission Journal, August of 1887, I feel that I would gladly give my life to working among such a people and regard it as a joy and privilege. Yet to women who may think of coming, I would say, count well the cost. You must give up all that you hold dear and live a life that is outside of your work, narrow and contracted to the last degree. If you really love the work, it will atone for all you give up. And when your work is ended and you go home to see the master smile and hear his voice of welcome, it will more than repay your toils amid the heathen. She would then say later, I would, I had a thousand lives that I might give them to the women of China. And I noted a historical point, the year of her death, 2,358 persons were baptized in her field of service, nearly doubling the Baptist population in the area. I have some further statements about her love for the Lord Jesus. I'm going to move past that to my conclusion to honor our time this morning. You can look at it on the manuscript that will be posted later. Miss Lottie Moon died at the age of 72. As I mentioned earlier, she weighed only 50 pounds, refusing to eat that her food might go to others. Her remains were cremated at Yokohama, Japan on December the 26th. Her personal effects consisted of one streamer trunk. In fact, the executor of her estate, W.W. Adams, stole off all of her personal property, cleared her bank account, and netted a total of $254 in inflated local currency. 
He would write back to Richmond with a broken heart, quote, The heiress of Dumont did not have enough estate to pay her way back to Virginia. You see, she'd given all she had to King Jesus. Twenty years following her death, Chinese women in remote villages would still be asking, When will the heavenly book visitor come again? And their testimony about her was how she loved us. One year following her death, a woman by the name of Agnes Osborne suggested that the annual WMU Foreign Missions Offering be taken as a living memorial to Lottie Moon, seeing it was her suggestion that launched the offering to begin with. In 1918, Annie Armstrong, for whom our home missions offering was established, said, and I quote, Miss Moon is the one who suggested the Christmas offering for foreign missions. She showed us the way in so many things. Wouldn't it be appropriate to name the offering in her memory? The issue was settled, and the rest is history. I close. Following her death, fellow missionaries came in possession of her Bible. On the flyleaf, words were found which she had penned that remained to this day a perpetual encouragement to those who go for Christ to the nations, quote, Oh, that I could consecrate myself, soul and body, to his service forever. Oh, that I could give myself up to him so as never more to attempt to be my own or to have any will or affection improper for those conformed to him. I close by simply saying this, she did, will we? I want us to pray. I'm going to ask our ushers to take their place. And we will at this time give at least a small financial gift in honor of this great little lady to help our brothers and sisters around the world take the gospel to those who as of yet have never heard the name of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the consecrated life of Lottie Moon. Having looked at William Carey, having looked at Adoniram Judson and his three wives, having looked at Bill Wallace and now Lottie Moon, Lord, my heart is convicted. I'm such a pathetic, pitiful servant of yours. I gripe and whine about things that don't really matter, and I fuss about things that do not really have any significance whatsoever. And I look at these men and women who gave everything for the cause of Christ and the cause of the gospel, and I am greatly convicted. And so, dear Lord, I pray... Give me the same kind of heart for lost people that we saw in William Carey, that we saw in Adoniram Judson and his three precious wives, that we saw in that martyred missionary Bill Wallace and now in the precious life of Lottie Moon. Lord, may we pray for the lost. May we share with the lost. May we give that the lost might be saved. And Lord, may we ourselves ask the question not, should I go? But dear Lord, is there any reason why I should stay? Lord, may you raise up a great army of missionaries from this seminary and our others that our foreign mission board, our international mission board, would have to say, we've got too many wanting to go. We don't have that problem. Would to God that you would indeed bring that to pass. Now receive our offering, Lord, as an act of love and as an act of gratitude for your grace and mercy. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, 
We hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.